Thank you for joining us and welcome. You're listening to Hey Siri Podcast and I'm Tom Siri. I'm the founder and CEO of RealSelf.com, something I've been doing for, well now, 13 plus years. And something I really am passionate about is sharing things that I discover and learn. I like to look for not just what trends are out there that are apparent, but underlying insights that can be gathered by looking at meta information, paying attention to consumers and what they're saying in our platform, and spending a lot of time with my audience, which are made up of doctors, practices, individuals who have industry relationships in the aesthetic space. Welcome to another episode of Hey Siri. I'm your host, Tom Siri, and I'm super excited about my guest today, Ken Meyer. Ken, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. And you're probably wondering in my audience, who's Ken Meyer? Tell me more about Ken Meyer. Don't worry, you're going to learn a lot. Ken and I have known each other, ooh, I don't know what. Seven six, years? Seven, seven yeah, years. Six, seven yep. years. Ken is really a, a stalwart of the tech industry here in Seattle, Washington, where I'm based, and someone who I've gotten to know really well over the years and respected for just a sage knowledge of how businesses operate, teams come together or don't come together. And I just want to thank you again for coming. And do you mind sharing with our audience a little bit about you professionally? Sure. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. I'm uh, honored to be here. I came here from Southern California when I was young, went to school here at the University of Washington. And shortly after school, joined IBM. And not because I was a computer scientist or that I was in love with computers, but it looked like a great company to work for. And I thought it would look good on my resume. And I went there and worked for quite a while, 15 years. And then I left and I went to progressively smaller companies. So I went from IBM to a $70 million public software company. And then I did a startup with the uh, a friend I made there, the CFO. Now that was moderately uh, generous, successful. And then I went and worked at a couple other startups. And then I ran the State Tech Association. So that was a nonprofit, which was a very interesting experience. And then over the last seven to 10 years, I've been doing a mix of things. I do interim leadership. So I come into companies who have lost a leader on very short notice and run the company for anywhere from four to seven, eight months. I teach leadership over at the University of Washington Business School. Uh, spent a little time in their tech transfer office working with uh, researchers who are spinning out. I was really impressed when, Ken, you had me come to your one of your lectures or your student groups and at University of Washington. And you said, will you come in for an entrepreneurial fireside chat? And I was like, sure. And I showed up and there was actually a fire. There was a, a fire. fire. There was a fireside. There was a fireside. I, uh, <laughs> I'm a man of my words, Tom. True, for sure. And it was a little hot. So hopefully you're comfortable right now. <laughs> I don't think that was the fire. Maybe the questions. Yeah, yeah. You notice I'm flipping the script here. Yes, I do. Well, look, let's get into it. My audience is made up of small business owners, operators, a number of doctors who are customers of Real Self. We reach entrepreneurs as well. So I thought you'd be a perfect guest to talk about really what's happening in this moment with the pandemic and COVID-19 and how the whole world is being shaken up, almost like one of those uh, snow globes that you shake and you kind of tip upside down. It almost feels like that's happening in our economy, in our lives, certainly in systems like healthcare. And as I'm reflecting on that, like how does a business owner, operator, leader get some 
footing under themselves so they can actually survive this period, if not even just try to find new paths of growth. And many of us are entrenched in our ways. You know, it's very hard to change. You know, that's a subject that I think you would have a lot of insight around given your what you just described as this interim CEO type, but also your entrepreneurial experiences, but also working with tech companies and companies that frequently go through this. So I'd love to start with you know, your interim executive roles where you come into a company that probably has some level or degree of challenge. Is that fair? Understatement. Okay. Challenges yeah. and have more of an affinity for failing or failure than probably your typical organization. It depends. The reason I'm there may be that a very good leader just got a better opportunity and the business is in pretty stable condition. Usually the business is either not doing as well as it really could or it's in trouble. I see. I just have this visualization of you just like parachuting down into this organization. And as you enter it, I'm just curious, what have you discovered is the most important thing you do when you enter an organization that is experiencing maybe this what we're seeing across the board now, which is this sort of unsettling and things are just not going right. And graphs are going down to the bottom, not up to the right. Yeah, it, parachute is a good uh, description. And what you don't know is whether you're parachuting into a meadow with a Bambi drinking out of the stream or it's a raging fire. And, and because I normally don't meet the previous leader and I only have about 48 hours notice, it's pretty interesting, right? And, and that's why it's such interesting and satisfying work. I've found that, you know, the couple things really matter quickly. One is to have the team believe, and, and I mean within first day, that it is about them and not me. It's really super important that they believe that I'm there for the period that I'm going to be there to help them move the business forward, find the right next person, and they're going to have an opinion about that that I can use and channel to the owners of the company. So number one is they have to really believe that it's not a self-serving mission for me to be there. The second is to have them believe, and it's been true every time, I think, that this is actually an opportunity for them because I don't have a political motivation at all, really. I'm not going to be there for the long term. So they can be super candid with me because the more candid with me it can be, the more I can get done on their behalf and on behalf of the business. It's also good for the board in that sense, in that they see me as someone who will tell them stuff that maybe the next CEO may not be motivated to talk about. So build confidence quickly, have them see this as an opportunity, and then not surprisingly, just do a lot of listening and have, have them with me develop the plan about how we're going to go forward. Because I think you know this fully well, 90% of the ideas are in the heads of the employees. It's just oftentimes not written down or it's not followed. I'm struck by your people-first orientation. And that's something I've seen in good leaders who've joined my organization where they come in and believe in the people and trying to get the most from them and enable them versus, I don't mean to pick on any company in particular, but like they get a bad rap. But like McKinsey, hey, we come in, here's your strategy you are missing, now go do it. And I think they're they're very different approaches, I, I would argue. Usually, I don't know a lot about, if anything, about their industry. So you would say, why why would you stick someone in there who doesn't know anything about this industry? I find that generally, a vast majority of what you do as a leader is align people 
around an objective and get them motivated to go get there and get the resources they need and then play a role yourself. But it's more than 50, if not 75% or more, your job is what I call a horizontal job versus a vertical job, you know, industry specific. So when you've seen these struggling teams and businesses up close, I'm just wondering if, if you've reached that place where you have pattern recognition of what is it that enables an organization to win or lose? And can that be transferable to sort of what people are feeling and experiencing today in COVID? I would say, generally speaking, winners are companies whose cultures are just super obsessed with customers and in pride in doing really good work. If you love serving customers and you really believe in doing excellent work, that's a fundamental to being successful in business. It's what they look for and who they hire. It's how they train them. It's how they recognize them. And so the real significant aspect of the culture is it's super customer obsessed and kind of quality and service obsessed. I think the other thing is that the culture really trusts people. They give them ownership. They encourage them to question things, to try things. They accept reasonable failures, right? They recognize really innovative ideas. One thing I like to think about when it comes to cultures is that you want to think about two things. One is you talk the talk. You, you talk a lot about culture in a business if you want it to be strong. You really try to figure out what is the core values and the norms of how you want to be working together. And then you walk it. And if you talk it a lot and you walk it a lot and those two things come together, you have a strong culture. But if you just talk about it, it's, it's pretty much vapid. And if you just walk it, it means everybody kind of picks what they think the culture is, which means you get warring factions. Yeah. And that all sounds really trite and you know simple. It is hard to do because you're constantly tested. You're going to have to make decisions in which you go, oh man, this, this kind of goes against what we believe in, but yet I need that customer. And so there are times where you, you bite your lip and you just stick to the culture. And there may be times where you say, we are going to make an exception, but we're going to do that consciously. Yeah. I'm not sure who coined the saying, culture eats strategy, but it's kind of what I thought of when you were describing that. And it is a, a challenge I have found too, is when culture is askew, performance is askew. Yeah. One of the customers we serve are doctors and they operate their own small businesses. Okay. And they're hurting and they are required in many states to be completely shut down. So significant, significant challenge. Given that as sort of the problem statement, what are things that come to mind? I'm not asking to be an expert in our space, of course, but what could they do to examine how they can survive the impact of the pandemic and come out of their shutdown in in a way that they're able to actually sustain and maybe even someday expand and grow? Yeah. I am super empathetic about what they must be going through right now. Because to say that your business can't operate is just tough to think about. As you said at the very beginning, this is like a storm that just hasn't stopped. You know, when an earthquake happens or some other natural disaster, there's an event and then it's over, generally. This is like a storm that hasn't stopped. So use the right word. Survive is the word. And I guess if I were in their shoes, the first thing I would do, and I probably would do this regardless of the business, is I would get 
customer obsessed. I would try to reach out to all my current customers and I try to find out how they're doing. Not what business am I going to get or not from them, but I would be interested in how they are doing. And so I'd be reaching out to all of them and trying to find that out. And they're going to appreciate that you asked. You're going to learn some things that you probably didn't anticipate. You're going to learn clearly who still wants to come in and get the procedure. You may find out who is not going to. You may find out who might postpone and for how long. You might find out in that conversation that there's something you can give them either from a consultative standpoint or maybe even a product standpoint. There may be a a product play in this thing that keeps them with you as a customer until they're maybe ready to do something that they're going to hold off on. Yeah. Give you an example. My wife and I have gone through many veterinarians and we have found one which we will stick with forever. Every single time we have visited the veterinarian with our dog, they call us up within a day or two. And sometimes at nine o'clock at night, we're sitting and watching television and the phone rings and it's our veterinarian and they want to know how the dog is. Well, your dog is very cute. So it, Thank you. Know. you. Thank you. <laughs> but we look at each other and said, can you believe they just called us? Fantastic. Right? Yeah. And, and, and so that's the first thing, right? So really hone in on your customers and really do some, what I, we call in our, you know, business term is segmentation, right? Kind of segmentation for yeah. who's, who's going to be a customer or not. Segmentation of what needs they have that you might be able to serve. Yeah. And some needs that you say, oh, I, I may have an opportunity here to go get something for them that I didn't do before. Well, I just want to interject this data point. I don't have the exact stat, but I was just reading a, a very large US-based consumer survey about consumer reaction response and how people are processing COVID-19 and its impact and their behaviors they expect. For instance, fear of going to restaurants was cited as 67% of US consumers have fear of going into a restaurant setting, which was pretty shockingly high. Usually you see surveys like 51%, 48%. But one thing that was cited as one of the most significant desires that consumers has to hear more from their doctors, mm -hmm. to hear more about... you know, they, The question was, have you heard from your primary care doctors anything about COVID? You know, have they contacted you? And something like, I want to say 70 plus percent said they had not heard, but they do want to. And if you think about our obsession with headlines and reading every COVID-related bit of information to just get informed, it makes sense. But I think just hearing from your provider, in our case, these doctors, even if they're not COVID experts, and that's not an area they cover, I think it does en engender a sense of like, wow, they really care about me beyond just striking my credit card or selling me a service. Right. I would almost avoid talking about or let them bring up the condition or what, that I was going to work on as a physician. I'd be calling to find out how they're doing. Are you okay? What do you need? You know, That's I mean, a great, right? great tip. What about, you know, a business has to think about customers and the pipeline of new potential. How could a practice that's in this state of near, if not complete shutdown, consider pipeline as a strategy? So the inside baseball pipeline expression essentially says you try to figure out in all these customers you have or could have, where are they? How many of them want to be doing business with you now? How many of them don't ever want to do that? How many want to do it four months from now? And you kind of figure out this, this pipeline of business that comes to you. I would say that if my pipeline is non-existent, then I've got to go out and figure out how I either cultivate my previous customers so that they come back, or how I generate new business that starts to come to me. 
And I think information is a super valuable thing that everybody's looking for. So I would probably, in addition to checking in with them, I would find out what they care about. I would start delivering them and the broader community that I'm seeking to attract the kind of information they want based on where they are today. I'm not looking to catch them as a fish. I'm looking to keep the relationship going or develop a new relationship because then they'll decide when it's time for them to come to me. Yeah. Certainly many of the considerations that the doctors in our network have for their services are thought about over years, not days, not weeks, not months. And so oftentimes I'll ask a doctor the health of that pipeline, how healthy is. And they sort of are like, well, I'm looking at my bookings and seeing how many patients have booked me in the the next several weeks. And I think that's one part, but there's also like, what is the future going to look like? Should we express what an MQL and an SQL is for this audience, Tom? It sounds like you want to do that. So I, but you have to define it. I will. (laughs) That's my only rule. (laughs) You know, it's so funny that all this stuff is so logical. Anybody can understand this stuff, right? Basically you have a website, right? And, uh, you're trying to attract people to come to you and visit you and check you out. If they come and check you out, they're somewhat qualified. That's called a marketing qualified lead. The marketing activities you did, advertising or otherwise, brought them to you. Then you got to figure out whether you can bring them in. And that's when somebody talks to them and figures that out. And if they do, that's a sales qualified lead. That's a really good lead. And you should ask yourself, what am I doing to get my awareness out into the world? And what is happening as a result of that? How many people are coming? What do they do when they come visit me? What do they look at? Right? How can I encourage them to ask for information for me or to call me or ask for some sort of information? It's kind of 101. Boy, we could do a whole show on the conversation about leads and one that's really elementary, but also tricky and challenging because you do have to have not just a qualitative view into it yeah. and, and tools associated with that. I'm over my skis right there. That, I sound pretty smart, but that's about all I know. No, I think, I think look, You're right. every small business has to make their decisions where they're going to put their emphasis. And I have, you know, you mentioned having a lot of empathy for doctors and these small business operators, and they also have to make their choices of where they invest. And frankly, I hope most practices, medical practices are, are first and foremost, not spending all their money in marketing, but on like quality of care type yes. services and safety. And, yeah. and particularly now, you know, making sure hygiene is of, of utmost importance. But there is the quant side too. Ken, one of the things that I know you enjoy is teaching others your expertise in how do you manage the world of small business ambiguity, entrepreneurship, and how to really inspire individuals to take that entrepreneurial leap of faith. And you shared with me a, a while back a class you teach on... It's called When a Business Pivot is Needed. And I really enjoyed reading through it. And you know, the idea of pivoting and this dramatic shift and change that a company could make in strategy or all other areas of the business seems very appropriate as we sit here during a pandemic where everything has changed, as we talked about earlier. And you know, I was noting that even Costco has to pivot. I mean, you can't just operate like nothing has changed. Everything has changed and they have to dramatically shift their operations and end up pivoting their operations. So I I guess the questions I want to get into are 
do you agree with me? Do you think right now we are all kind of in the midst of needing to make a pivot? Or would you just say, actually, it's not quite a pivot. We really just need to make adjustments that are sometimes more extreme than things we made in the past. Not surprisingly, it depends on the business. I, I don't think anyone is in a position where just small changes are going to be needed here. It really is much more substantive in every area and some of them massively. So tell me in your teaching to students about entrepreneurship, how do you explain what is a pivot? Because that's some terminology that I think people like myself and entrepreneurs and maybe tech people talk about a lot, but can you, can you just define it? Sure. And, and I'm using Eric Ries, who wrote the book, The Lean Startups Definition. And it's essentially when you change your strategy, but you're not changing the vision of what you want your business to essentially be. So you have a vision of what you're capable of, what you see the changes in the world that you want to make. And you've tried some things and you say, I've got to try a completely different approach. And you ask yourself a number of questions, which we can go through. Do you typically enter the state of or decision point of of pivot based on bad news? Or is it always a negative thing? Or is there sometimes a positive factor behind it? No, it's usually not the best news, but there are some situations where you might have been successful in something and you realize it's feeding your company, but it's not a long-term play for you. It's not going to grow your business substantially. So you're going to go pivot to someplace else while you continue to do that one side of the business that's bringing you money, and then you're going to let it go. Right. So when you're thinking about small businesses, early stage companies, do you think COVID then implies, you said it's based on company, but if you're a restaurant operator right now, do you need to do a pivot? Or is there a different way you would express the changes they have to make? You know, I think it's a whole range of adaptation. And pivot is a word used to do a big shift. But there's all kinds of minor to significant shifts. So it's, it's really a question for your business as a physician. What are some questions you want to ask yourself to determine how you might change based on what you're facing with COVID. And there's some questions, great questions you can ask yourself. Recently, a doctor, he's a dermatologist who's very successful in Florida, Dr. Mark Nestor, was on a webinar with me and he talked about how his entire model for delivering dermatologic care that he used to operate is out the window. He can't do what he did in the past. And the utilization rates are not what they used to be. You, know, you can't jam a waiting room full of patients all sitting together. You can't stack people up in hallways. There's just all sorts of things that are making this business that has always sort of followed a certain pattern no longer viable. And so I guess you would say that's not a problem where he has to pivot his practice because he still wants to sort of serve, deliver the same kind of services. He just can't do it in the same way. I would, yeah, I would think about it kind of in two different ways. How do you operationally need to change? And how do you strategically need to change? And you start with that first one. Maybe you start with a second one, kind of like, given the current business I'm doing today, how do I operationally change so that I can deal with all the demands of COVID, right? You know, I'm thinking of things like Disneyland. Well, Disneyland has too many people wanting to go to a ride. So what they do is they have the fast pass where they tell you, you're going to show up at this ride at 10, 15. 
why can't you use this kind of concept when it comes to scheduling how you're going to see patients or, or how you can minimize the times they come in and do things through telemedicine or through other things? So there's kind of operational changes. But then there's a question of, is this only going to be 20% of my business moving forward? And do I got to figure out 80% doing something else? Mm-hmm. And I would give some questions they could ask. They could ask, is there one thing I do really, really well that I could make an entire business? and not do other things. I'd like pick that one thing. Or is what I do a part of something bigger? So for example, if people are concerned about making forays into a medical practice, you know, that whole act of going in and out, is this the time where practices are going to combine? So I'm part of a bigger practice because we all together can manage that person coming through and that one experience is managed and they don't have to do this three different ways with three different practitioners. Another question is, should I be serving a different customer than the one I do today, but with my capabilities? Does my customer have a different need that I could serve that I'm not serving today? So you see these list of questions you can go through, and it's just a great exercise, I mean, especially now. Should I partner with someone else who will bring me most of my prospects versus doing that myself? So... Yeah, I think the fee for service is what it's called in, in the space around most of the cosmetic side, certainly in the cosmetic surgery side, very little insurance coverage. There's an interesting thing because I see many businesses continue to operate that sort of cafeteria tray model where it's just like customers come in, you serve them and they leave. And you just don't really care who you're serving. But it strikes me as if fewer patients are able to get through the system, you know, there's, there's a choke point there in terms of the utilization possible at a practice that maybe they need to get more scrutinized around who indeed is coming in that door and how well they serve them. Mm-hmm. Does that strike you as a good advice or good? Absolutely. Okay. That's really good advice. In fact, I think it's interesting that we're sitting here. I can't remember any specialist that I've gone through in my many years that's ever reached out to me and has considered me an ongoing customer. It's, it's been 100% transactional relationships. And I find that astounding that anyone would have just a transactional relationship with their customer. But that's the thing. My veterinarian calls me up, my plumber. Call, and these are the kind of people I want to stick with because I'm just not a transaction to them. So I'm sort of leading you to what another business term that you're very familiar with is LTV or the long-term value of a customer. I think that makes a lot of sense when you're operating a business that has a is selling just widgets and so forth. But giving a value around a person in a medical context seems a little crass to me. My instinct tells me, ah, oh boy, you're really going to evaluate a patient, potential patient, on how much money they're worth. Can you help me overcome that sort of feeling of a little bit of ickiness associated with that? Sure, because it is an important business principle. Yeah, I would uh, get rid of the word value and just say lifetime customer. And if you keep in contact with your customers, even when it doesn't mean business today, you'll have a better shot at lifetime customers. If I do a one time every 10 year thing, am I ever going to see that physician again? I don't know. And I can understand why the physicians listening to this would say, why would I contact Ken again? I may never see him again. But, you know, it's not doesn't cost a lot. And you might be able to refer me to somebody who's going to refer somebody to me. So I might find something that will be of value to Ken. I love that. 
Wow, that's wonderful advice. And actually, I hadn't even thought about reframing it that way. I feel better now. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) My ickiness went away. (laughs) It's like we had a drink together. (laughs) So last night, I was talking to a really great entrepreneur in in town here who runs a company called CrowdCow. Are you familiar with CrowdCow? I am not. So basically you buy a cow and you get to eat it. So uh, <laughs> that's probably not their pitch. <laughs> Good. <But laughs> it's much more elegant than that. But he was showing me how for, in terms of that lifetime customer view, they really are doing some super creative things such as a handwritten postcard that they send to a customer. And I was like, when's the last time a business has sent something handwritten to me on a postcard form? and and just how much goodness that would engender in my heart of and mind of that business. And like, wow, they really value me. They took that time in this time and when it's so much easier just to blast people with a, an e-blast or whatever they call them these days with email. And how hard was that? I think he actually has a machine that does the drawing. <laughs> the script? <laughs> yes. No, people can read that. People know that. You can tell. But your, your point is right on. It's, uh, it's not that hard to write a personal note to somebody. And we all know what it's like when you get a card like that or a note like that. Yeah, it's amazing. Particularly now with COVID, I, and it probably was pre-COVID. I don't really remember what it was like. But just that people are taking a, a moment to care about your well-being is pretty special and a unique opportunity, I think. It should come from a place of earnestness and you actually care, but it's going to stand out. We are having a global shared experience. How many times in our life have we had a global shared experience? I don't know of any. Let's think about that and slow down a little bit and ask, you know, how our neighbors are doing? How's our customers doing? You know, we're doing it with our friends. We're doing it with our family. Yeah, I mean, I've I've launched this podcast at the start of this pandemic and I think it's been one of my mechanisms for reconnecting the people and and establishing stronger ties and and hopefully being more helpful to others in practice or business. Yeah. It's a great idea. It's great. I don't want to leave pivots entirely because I okay. I just have one more thing I want to get into there, which is indeed if a business is like we have to change our full strategy. Instead of being a dermatology practice, we are going to be a skincare outlet. I'm just using it as a yeah example of a a strategic pivot. What is it about startups that make them able to accomplish a pivot much more frequently, or at least you hear about more often than say an established company? Like what did they do that is important that a a more traditional business would have to think about and, and sort of embrace? Well, I think there's two things. One is they don't have any customers or not a lot of them. Okay. When you don't have a lot of customers, the risk of the downside is lower. And secondly, they're not always, but they're often financed by investors who understand that they're going to experiment a bunch to figure out how to dial in a business. Where an established company, the good news is you've got customers. The challenge is, is if you're going in a different direction, you need to be ready to take them there or to let them go. Do you think doctors, because they're customers that I know really well, they're scientists. Yeah. And that's why actually I, I find them to be incredible customers because they 
they are logical and they follow patterns and they want evidence and, and all these things that you would hope most people would want versus just following gut and you know just um, winging it. Mm-hmm. But do you think that could work against them in this environment where there is no pattern? That this is all net new and there is no decision tree that has been proven? It could be if the source of their information isn't their customers, their employees, their peers who are experiencing this. If it's all in their head, then yeah, you're having one, however highly educated, one opinion. So uh, Mm -hmm. being a good data processor is really good. We have to be a really good ingester of information as well. And I have noticed a personal experience from working with research scientists who are spinning out companies is they are fantastic as experimenters because they have an experimentation mentality and they don't take personally failures because they are on a quest to figure out the truth. They're logical, but they to a T generally are challenged in that they need to learn how to go out and talk to customers, how to get out of their own preconceived perceptions about what the problem and solution is. So yeah, that super incredible brain is a huge asset if you open it up to ingesting all kinds of information sources. And at the same time, you have to be honest with yourself and say, how can I either get myself comfortable or find someone who can partner with me who's comfortable in getting that other side, the extroverted side of going out, getting uncomfortable interacting with people? Yeah, it's fascinating to run into doctors who have this or entrepreneurial bug mixed with that as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I talked to one literally yesterday who had identified in their course of being an expert and running a very successful specialty in a hospital system, that there was a way to virtualize what they do so they could bring their care and better care to the system and to patients by simply you know, building an app and other aspects of it. And she had noted that to get to that space where she was able to visualize it all happening, it took talking to people far outside her her echo chamber of more people, you know, consultants to medical practices and hospital administrators, but she had to talk to people who have had success in angel investors or entrepreneurs. And frankly, she reached out to me, I think, to increase that expanse of feedback and knowledge building and challenge to how she should be thinking about it. So I, I've seen it firsthand that doctors are capable of that, but I think all of us are at risk of falling into that go chamber of talking to people we know or who are always giving us the same advice. Yeah, it's true. Half of all new startups fail from lack of getting customers. And you think about that for a minute and you say, what? And the answer is half of all startups fail because they can't get customers, yet they go and build a product and hope it'll go somewhere. The ones who succeed are out there talking to customers, iterating, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. So you have to get out of the echo chamber. You have to go talk to people. Yeah, that's a theme that you've pulled through from the beginning of this conversation while I threw this. It resonates with me, Ken, because the customer obsession is, is something when I look back at mistakes I've made as an entrepreneur, it's when I started falling in love with my own agenda yeah. and not listening carefully to the customer and learning and learning and learning. Yeah. So I sincerely appreciate you bringing that up. It's humbling. It's really humbling to do it. Yeah. Didn't Bezos write in one of his letters, like, our customers are delightfully dissatisfied? 
I have it's like that. only right. Jeff Bezos would say that. Um, yeah, that's great. But there's a reason why he's the richest person in the world. He didn't get there because he had all the ideas. Right. I want to switch gears because one other aspect of your professional expertise and something I've seen you do for me is coaching and executive coaching, but just coaching, whether it's a student or somebody who just needs a little bit of advice in a business. I feel like right now, there's a lot of us who are small business operators, whether my customers are just an individual who's running a business here in our local town that's struggling and they can see nothing going in the right direction. As I mentioned earlier, all the charts are pointing the wrong way, mm-hmm. foot traffic's off, sales, cash on hand. How does that person, how do they stay motivated? Is there any trite advice there or significant advice you can give to, well, how does that person sort of pick themselves up and yeah. look forward? That is the hardest question you've asked today. Well, I would say the first thing is, it's, you know, you have to be compassionate with yourself first, right? If you can't be compassionate with yourself, it's going to be really hard to move forward. And so that's where it starts. So talking to people who are in your own situation, because misery truly does love company, can help you feel slightly better that you're not alone. Talking to people that you trust in confidence about what you're going through and asking for advice while humbling They'll feel great and you will get some nuggets of good insight and you'll feel good for, again, talking about it. So both of you are going to feel good if you talk about it. If you need to, I know this sounds really trite, but it's so important to like sleep well, eat well, and and get your blood pumping and your brain oxygenated. So if you have to, you got to put together a sleep, eat, and exercise schedule just to keep yourself in healthy condition. I have found that when you do something nice for somebody else, it feels really good. So do something proactive for your family or for a neighbor or something, particularly your family, because they're super worried about you. And it's going to make them feel a little bit better that you thought to do that. And it's going to make you feel good. So at a very high level, you really have to first give yourself a break. And you're not alone in this thing. And it's okay to wallow in it for a while. It's okay. Feel it. I'm not a physician or a psychologist, but I just know how I feel. I can't just blow it off. Then you say, okay, how do I get through this? And I have to say to myself, there's other people, not just me. It's my team, right? My employees. And so how can I figure out what's stressing them out? So I think being compassionate on yourself, getting help and being healthy is like super important. And the, and I would give a caution about those who are closest to us. I think our spouses and our partners, they have an unending well of what they'll be able to take. And I caught myself years ago that I realized without my wife telling me, I'm like, I am giving her way too much. And it was a checkpoint for me to say, you know, I got to decide how much, because they will give us everything. But, you know, that's, you got to ask, how much do you want to give to them? Wow. I had a lot of thoughts that it evoked, but one in particular is, sorry, by the way, if you hear a a sound in the background, that is my dog snoring loudly. (laughs) (laughs) So I was going to take this pen and throw it at him, but I felt bad for him because he's really enjoying his sleep. I'm glad glad it's not someone who's an adult, at least the dog sleeping with us talking. That's okay. He is sacked out. (laughs) Stress-free. I was struck by how you mentioned giving back, or at least I, I will assert that you were saying giving back can often get you in a place where it gives you sort of a dopamine release and, and a feeling of goodness. And I certainly can relate to that. I was talking to a friend who was 
buying meals and, and donating towards meal purchasing from local restaurants that have delivery or takeout. And then they're bringing it to local ERs and donating it. And you could say, ah, that's not going to make a difference. It's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a scratching the surface of what problems exist in the healthcare system. But I don't think they're doing it just for that. I think it really made them feel a little bit of a footing under themselves in a sense of they, they could make a difference in some way and it made them feel good. Yeah, and it's a, in a time when you're feeling very selfish, not in a negative way, but selfish, being selfless is really pretty nourishing. Yeah, I think if ever before there's been appreciation for what I have and... Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel so thankful for the resources I have, the friends, neighbors, and, and just uh, when people check in on me and say, are you okay in Seattle? You know, we've heard it's really bad there with COVID. I'm like, you shouldn't worry about me. I appreciate it, but there are people who have much, much more pain they're experiencing, including 25% of our country is unemployed right now. Yeah, I keep reminding myself, this is just an inconvenience. Yeah, that's all it is, and 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 I'm to be blessed to be in that position. So one of the things I've had to do is give our team routine updates on the business, and we've we have sacrificed quite a bit of growth. We've lost our head of steam of growth with basically meeting our customers where they are and just giving them financial relief, and you know that has cost us quite a bit in terms of our ability to employ people. We've had to lay off individuals from our team and. One of the questions I had for you is just, I have a philosophy, and if I want to hear you review, is like, should should a business leader now be speaking to their team with radical candor? Should they be straight up and say, here are all the things that are happening to our business that are could be potentially incredibly negative? Or should they hold a little bit back because the reality is so hard to take? You know, in some ways, I don't view this situation differently than any other day-to-day business situation in terms of how much transparency I'm going to provide a team that I'm working with. I'm going to always try to tell the team the truth about where our business is and the facts I know about where we are trying to go and the data that indicates how far we can get so far. I mean, I, I tell them the truth about what I know. What I'm careful about is speculating because speculating is just that. Everyone will process it completely different. Not that they don't process facts differently, but speculation is is not super helpful. I think what I tried to tell them is, look, here's the facts. Here's the scenarios we're looking at, right? So we are not just blind. Well, we're looking at these different scenarios. And when we know more, you will know more. And when you do know that troubled times are really in front of you and that you're going to have to make some super difficult decisions, do that as fast as possible. So is there ever a time where you would hold back information? You know, uh, yes, there might be. If I think that it would damage the business long-term or have to wait a little before I release that information because I have to line some things up. So I may know some things that are bad that are going to happen but I just don't immediately tell the, the team. I've got to figure out the implications of that because I'm responsible for the business or to owners who own the business. And so, you know, I, there was a situation where a company I was involved with got acquired and I had a, a poor performing leader in one part of the world and the team 
was wondering why the heck I hadn't done anything about it. And I had planned to do something about it. I couldn't do anything. So I just, I had to wait because we were in the middle of an acquisition. On the other hand, in that same period of time, there was hesitancy amongst the executive team, particularly the leader, about telling the audience, our home team here, that there was going to be a layoff. Mm-hmm. Or, or there was a good shot that there was going to be a layoff. We, we were pretty certain. And so I said, I'm, I'm not being a hero here. I sent a note to everybody in the company and I told the CEO I was going to do that. And he was okay. I said, I'm going into the lunchroom with a brown bag lunch. Anyone who wants to come, welcome to come. And I'll answer any questions that I know. And one person asked, are there going to be layoffs? And I said, you know, my gut says, yes, here's why. And as we were leaving, she was in tears and I you know, grabbed her by the shoulder. She said, thanks so much for, I'm, I'm not crying because of the news. I'm crying from relief that what I've been stressed about is kind of finally, now I know how to deal with it. Yeah. I think it's that everybody can sense something. And if you're not yeah. speaking to it, then it just reinforces yeah. the narrative of, wow, things are maybe this, you know, interpretations, you know, right. and, and narratives that may aren't, maybe not be helpful. I, I think I can answer my own question with thinking of like, financing as a startup. When I was first starting out, I, I remember the answer was we were running out of money really fast. And if I had told the team, oh, I won't be able to give you a paycheck in eight weeks. It's very different from, hey, we're working on financing and we're going to raise this amount of money and that will allow us to continue to expand our team and so forth. So it's just it wasn't necessarily I was hiding the truth. I just didn't present the information in a way that led to panic and everybody running for the door. Right. I think that if you truly believe in doing the right thing for the team, then you're going to make decisions, which means you're not going to tell them exactly everything right at the moment. You're going to manage it smartly because things can change. You're yeah. going to manage it smartly. Yeah. If you had a group of doctors in front of you, my customers, mm-hmm. happy to invite you to a conference when they have one someday. <laughs> I'd, I'd uh, love to. I'd love to meet him. It has to be in Vegas, unfortunately, usually. No. Um, is there any advice you would be able to give them in terms of going back to the coaching and what you just said that I haven't already gotten from your comments about thinking about the world ahead as there are some positive things to think about? Do you think there's opportunities that could be presented from the crisis we're in, for instance? If it's okay, I'll answer this in, in a couple of ways. One is, I absolutely believe that during these times, there's huge opportunity. The world is shaking underneath our feet. It's going to settle out. And a lot of it will be the same as it was before. And there's going to be some new stuff. So what might that new stuff be? And try some experiments and see if there's interest in it. So it's a great time for experimentation because the cost, as long as it's relatively reasonably priced experimentation, the cost is really cheap. If it doesn't work, you try something else. So all of the times that there have been disruptions, new businesses have been formed out of it and new opportunities. So I would say going back to this customer theme, right? Go there and try some experiments. The other thing I would say, just because you say they are very logical and rational, I would give you some thinking about leadership. And the first thing I would say is that the greatest leadership development experiences are what are called crucible moments. These are moments when you are tested and you decide how you are going to become or not become some other version of yourself. Who you see yourself as is either strengthened as a leader or it's diminished. 
I would encourage people to look at this as an opportunity, a crucible moment to become a stronger leader. And how do they do that? Well, it's been very clearly shown that the degree to which you accelerate your leadership is a function of what's called developmental readiness. Your readiness to think and act in new and different ways that help you become a better leader, right? And being developmentally ready means you're able to think in new and operate in new ways, and you're motivated to do that. It's kind of the growth mindset concept, right? With a a bit more, it's kind of able and motivated. And I just would say for those who are, these are very bright people in your audience, very rational. This is a crucible moment. You are highly developmentally ready. You can be developmentally ready even more than you are today. If you're open to saying, I am going to not take this personally, I'm going to look at this and say, I'm going to grow out of this experience. And that sounds easy, but it's been proven that your readiness to think and act in new ways is more important than any advice anybody gives you about what to do. Excellent. I love it. The crucible. I'm I'm going to have to dig into that for myself and think about it. By the way, I've got uh, now... In addition to a snoring dog, yeah, I have two fighting children. Oh, you better get on that. You better <laughs> no. get on that. No, I just want you to know if you, I, no. I, if you heard any um, sounds of mayhem, that nope. is uh, the work from home. I would love to talk for hours with you. And, and in fact, I get to offline, so that's <laughs> fine. But uh, I do want to keep on this theme of thinking about the future in a positive sense. Because I I frankly, I'm an optimistic individual when I think about business and opportunities that arise. And I agree with you entirely. I just think you just have to look at trends and patterns and and make some predictions. But there are going to be tremendous new avenues of ways we can create value for consumers and customers. And just things we just would never have expected. Are there any resources that you could point to that would be helpful for our audience that you found helpful and that maybe it could be a book, it could be a blog, a podcast, anything that you would recommend? There's a lot of books. If you want to build some new habits, I do like uh, Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit. If you want to learn more about being a better leader, there's lots of books. I do have to say Radical Candor is a pretty good book about that because it's not just about being candid with people. It's, it's a way of thinking about how to you know, nurture a team. Uh, I'm just looking up at my bookshelf right now. If you need to get more in the moment, uh, there's nothing like Ellen Langer's mindfulness. That's great. And is there any way my audience can connect with you if they want to learn more, hear you? Do you have some of your lectures that they record? Just any, any online access to you or is it just predominantly LinkedIn? No, you can send an email to me at ken at kenmeyer.com, K-E-N-M-Y-E-R, or go to kenmeyer.com. It's my leadership website. So if a business needs advice, I know you're not a consultant, but would that be appropriate for someone to say, hey, can I have this problem? Can you take a look at it? Is that something? Sure. Okay. That's what I make sure. Sure. Yeah. If I'm taxed, I will let them know, but I am, I'm here to help anybody. That's great. Well, you've helped me a lot today. I want to thank you for being a really special guest for me on Hey Siri. But I want to just say thank you once again, Ken Meyer. Have a great rest of your day and please stay in touch. Will do. Thanks, Tom, for having me. The best way to reach me is just send an email to Hey Siri at realself.com. That's H E Y S 
E-E-R-Y at realself.com. We look at every single message that comes in and respond. And if you have feedback that's positive, love it. Challenges, even better. Want to be a guest, even more delightful. So please 